0: Well, I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, of course, we have uh, Henry Vosburg with us today, which we're taking full advantage of for not just our morning time together for our membership uh, aspect and celebration and things, but also for our Sunday school time. So um, he's going to bring a good lesson today and think about inspiration of scriptures, which is uh, a very relevant topic for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, increasingly, we find that you know one of the first things that people who are drifting away from the faith or want to attack the things that we hold dear, and the things that we believe, one of the things, first things that will be attacked is the inerrancy and the inspiration of the Scriptures. So this is an increasingly relevant topic, and I'm just going to go ahead and open us in prayer, and then I'm going to turn it over to Henry. Thank you, Lord, so much for today. Thank you for your Word. Uh, thank you for the confidence that we can have, and uh, I pray that uh, as we Study this material today as we look at your word and uh, consider how you have inspired it and uh, given your communication to us. Pray that we would be edified, encouraged, strengthened, and equipped for the work of the ministry. And pray this in Christ's name, Amen. Okay.
1: All right. Well, good morning. good morning. It's good to be with you today. Hey, Phil. Hey, Robin. How are you? It's good to see you guys today. It's interesting, when you know, Pastor Ken mentioned the, the attacks on the scriptures, It's uh, uh, that's the one they have to go for. That, that, that's basically like the jugular that the world, the enemy, will go for. Because if you can undermine the revelation that God has given to about himself, you undermine every aspect of truth. If you can just eliminate truth, then everybody's truth is their own truth. And that's, of course, the kind of world we live in these days. And not that I want to start on a negative, but uh, since... Ken started on one, let's, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, by introducing it that way, um, you know, it's it's one thing to say it's a negative, but it's another thing to talk about the urgency of the day and, you know, how we need to protect ourselves and the fact that what we're going to be talking about not only this morning in, in Sunday school, but also in the morning message. Uh, if, if truth is on the, if truth is is on is in the scales weighing whether or not it's valid, uh, what is truth? I mean that is just the, the the core of all the core questions, and God settled it. God settled the truth by establishing his his word by showing the fact that He can communicate, that He has told us what He wants us to know, and uh, it goes back that way all the way to the garden. What was the first challenge that was faced? Half God said? Okay, so right there, revelation is being challenged from the very word go. You undermine that at that point, and that's, of course, what prompted uh, the whole process that led to the fall. And so this is, uh, this is certainly the tactic of the devil these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, what I want to do is I want to start with a story, because when we talk about the doctrines of Scripture, you know, one of the things that I'm very convinced about is that there is a great important place for doctrinal instruction, where if we were to come and say, well, we're going to have a, we're going to have a class on systematic theology, um, that sounds really dry, really rote, very academic. Um, and, and, and there is an important place for that. I've taught systematic theology in numerous contexts, various ways, different approaches. But one of the things that doctrine uh, seems to get uh, put aside from is, is the celebration component of our doctrine, to celebrate our truths. What is it that really is so about the inspiration of the Scriptures that would cause me to celebrate this? And that's kind of the spirit that I want to give this lesson in. So I'm going to start with a story, <laughs> okay? Um, the time that, that, that to find in your text Second Timothy chapter 3. Of course, that's the uh, kind of the, the hallmark verses, of, uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the hallmark verses of inspiration of Scripture. But when Paul wrote these words to Timothy, it was happening in around the late 60s A.D., and it was the culmination of about 35 years that were 35 years like no other in all of history. Uh, you go all the way back to the earliest part of the 30s A.D. For three years, Jesus lived this incomparable life. I mean, there was like nothing to be... Uh, likened to him. It was filled with these spectacular miracles. There were unparalleled teachings and wisdom that he imparted. And, and all of that life of the Lord was just this fountained fullness of divine grace and truth. That's what John described when he came and he was full of grace and truth. And, and all of times that Jesus was on the earth and it came to a finish with this amazing. Uh, uh, number of days. It commenced with with Palm Sunday, where Jesus presented himself as Israel's king. Then it was followed by that week of passion. The, even that week was filled with, with stunning words and mighty works. And if you're ever looking for a biblical summary of the life of Christ, that's how you can describe his ministry, mighty words, mighty works. And, and words and works are always the way to be able to compare it. And there's actually a scripture text for that I can show to you sometime. Um, uh, but then, of course, he suffers betrayal at the hand of Judas, led to Calvary, our Lord's death on the cross. Then three days later, he's gloriously resurrected. And for the next 40 days, he showed himself alive to his disciples and many others, at the end of which they were gathered on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sends to the, into the heavens to assume his place at the right hand of the Father. Then 10 days after that, The Holy Spirit came upon the followers of Christ, and on that day of Pentecost, the church was born. Peter preached the first gospel message. Three thousand souls were saved, baptized, and added to the church. Okay, so that moves us forward a little bit. Uh, A few years later, Saul of Tarsus is converted on the road to Damascus. He's appointed to be Paul, the the apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, this, there, there is no one in all of church history like Paul. He, he, God, he was the prototype, and God broke the mold. <laughs> That's all there was to it. Um, uh, he conducted three missionary journeys, planted numerous churches along the eastern, all throughout the eastern Mediterranean. He touched thousands of lives with the gospel of Christ. He wrote 13 books, which are now preserved as part of the canon of Scripture. There's no one in all of church history that could be compared to Paul. Well, it was early in the second missionary journey that Paul was formally introduced to a young believer by the name of Timothy. Here's this young man. He was among the Christians in the cities of Lystra and Iconium, and and, and Timothy had already developed this faithful reputation, and so when Paul came to those cities, he met, and he eventually recruited Timothy to the missionary team, and that began— a spiritual father son relationship between those two men that would last, obviously, for the rest of Paul's life. Uh, you know, if you've ever been uh, in your life, if you can think back to there was a Christian man or a Christian woman that you kind of elevate to be a spiritual parent in your life, uh, that would be similar uh, to what Paul and Timothy had. Maybe it was your own parent, might have been a pastor, might have been a teacher, a professor. Um, Often and it's true in my life, it's just that unassuming person, someone who doesn't even have a formal station. <laughs> He's not, he or she's just not someone who had an office of any kind, but forever they're your, your model, they're your mentor. You frankly would make them your hero. And that's the kind of relationship that Paul and Timothy had. They traveled together, they did ministry together, went from city to city. They endured persecution, hardship, and when Paul could not attend to important ministry business, the guy he sent as his proxy was Timothy. He would send Timothy to go and conduct business for him because he was the best man to take his place. They'd seen tragedies. They'd seen victories of spiritual battles for the souls of men. But now it's in the late 60s, where to the time when he's writing to Timothy, he's in his final imprisonment, and Paul longs for his son in the faith to come to him before he departs via martyrdom he's going to be uh, taken uh, going to be beheaded eventually tradition tells us uh, to meet his god and savior jesus christ now with that on the near horizon put yourself in timothy's soul okay uh he's facing the prospect that his beloved teacher his his spiritual father is about to depart from this life now what does that mean what's that going to cost him Well, frankly, Timothy's going to ask, how am I supposed to carry on? Who's going to replace this man in my life to give me counsel, to give me truth? How could even Timothy be assured that he himself was going to be able to go forward with authorized instruction and truth to give to the people of God. Because Paul has so far been the very source for doctrine of faith in life. Paul, in his own words, says he's ready to be offered the time of my departure is at hand. Well, if that's the case, then Timothy's not going to have any longer apostolic counsel. Someone who is authorized to give truth. There's not going to be any more spiritual sessions together. And most importantly, there aren't going to be any more new parchment letters sent that he could read for himself and then read to the people of God. He's not going to have any of that any longer. And so with all that in mind, Paul anticipates what could be angst or fear in the heart of Timothy, and he says these incredible words. 2 Timothy 3, look at verse 14. He tells Timothy, I want you to continue in the things which thou hast learned and has been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Uh, Oh, here is that. I knew that there was one here. And try the on button. And there we are. Those are the words that I just read to you. Okay, so what you have here, Timothy, you're never going to lack for anything that you need for your ministry as a believer. I know I'm about to leave, but as a man of God, you possess and you always will have pasa grafe all scripture God-breathed. And we'll talk about that phrase in a minute. You've got the sum total of the inspired word to serve as your guide, your sustenance, your resource for anything that you ever need. Yes, Timothy, I'm departing soon. But what you have remaining with you and what will remain with every generation of believers after you is a treasure of That's infinitely greater than the ministry of just one apostolic voice. You have the Bible. You have the graphe, the scriptures. And this day, we rejoice to affirm that we possess in our hands something that I call the indestructible, inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God. Every possible good eye you can think of. (laughs) All right? That's what this Word is for us. And so I want to talk about. The, that verse, those verses today, 16 and 17. From the end the beginning of Genesis to the final amen of Revelation, we have the entirety of God's truth divinely superintended and recorded as the faith once delivered unto the saints. And we say that with complete confidence because of the words that Paul told Timothy about the inspired truth scriptures. So today we're going to ask and answer two important questions. Uh, the first question is what does the inspiration of the Bible mean? And then secondly, why is the inspiration of the Bible significant? So let's start with that first question. What does the inspiration of scripture mean? All right, so here's what here's our outline for point number 1, okay? So that way I'm not clicking and missing everything. Or <laughs> right, making you catch up. All right, so here we go. There's the whole slide for point number 1. So if we begin at three sixteen, there's an interesting. The beginning clause says, "All Scripture is given by inspiration of God." That translates those three Greek words I just read to you: Pasa, graphe theopnustas." Pasa, all very simple word. Just all means all, right? Okay. Graphe like graphite in a pencil. Graphe Scripture. Okay, all those writings. And then Theopnustas, God breathed. Now, those first two words are, are rather rudimentary, okay? All means all, as I said. Uh, scripture, not just rudimentary or, or something passé, just, it, it just means it's those, the, the, those authoritative writings, those things that are rightly recognized as thus saith the Lord. Uh, Old Testament, what Moses wrote. When when David said, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me and his word was in my tongue. We're talking about the Psalms. We're talking about every writing prophet from Isaiah to Malachi. Uh, You get to the New Testament. Every gospel writer. Every apostolic or apostolically connected document that's now preserved in the canon. That's all scripture. Anything that's recognized as scripture. And so, grafe, all scripture is theopneustas so okay, theopnustas. god breathe that word's not rudimentary that word is l- fully loaded the thea that part you pretty much know that is usually a word everyone recognizes meaning god but then it's combined with this word pneo to breathe and it forms what i believe is a is a paul invented word i've not found it in other Greek literature, it may be there. I've not been able to locate it so far, so I think it's a Paul-invented word. Uh, Theopneustos, and we translate that God-breathed. So let's talk about what does that first not mean. Okay, the word inspiration, that's where our word inspiration comes from. We use that in our translation. But when we use that word outside of a scriptural context, it's usually used in this rather emotional or this romanticized way, oh, something inspired me, okay? Uh, So we've got this whole thing of, you know, people beholding a work of art or listening to a piece of music or reading a poem or especially if you're a person who's artistic and creates those kind of things, you were somehow moved by something that then made you express yourself. And the way that they'll say it is that they were inspired to create. Now, in normative English usage, that is perfectly acceptable to say that, to use the word inspired that way. But in terms of theological expression, I want you to know that's a major off ramp to heresy. Okay? (laughs) All right. To say that you, as an individual, are inspired. You're going to find out that even the Bible does not even give that credit to any individual. No man is ever inspired. I'll show it to you in a minute. Um, there's a story that was told by a that's told about a pastor who years ago was listening to a popular Christian song of the day, and the song was all mixed up with these different scripture references and theologies to the point that the outcome was just a big soupy mess. It was like. Kamala Harris writing a hymn, uh, <laughs> so it was you know so it, it's so he decides he's going to confront the songwriter about the biblical mistakes that are in the song, and the, the reply that he got back was very defensive. The songwriter said it would be wrong of me to correct my work because that would be tampering with the inspiration of God. <laughs> Well, and if you're and if you just haven't had a you know like a, a major a cringe of some kind, please develop one <laughs> uh, I, I, because I, I'm sure we love Christian music. I know your pastor loves Christian music. I love the music that we that we enjoy in different places. I love going to art museums. I, I appreciate poetry and great literature. Uh, one of the courses I teach for Tyndale, I've got an entire lecture on how the philosophical arena of aesthetics, the philosophy of beauty. That's a major component to a holistic biblical worldview. But the moment that someone claims that an emotionally inspired brushstroke to a painting or a carefully crafted lyric or a cadenced line of poetic rhyme You say that you're just as inspired as Psalm 23 or John 3.16, Mm -hmm. you just colored way outside the lines of biblical orthodoxy, okay? So for any man to say that he's biblically inspired of God is actually heretical. You might be sincere, and I'm not challenging your, your innocence in that, but to say those words Is heretical scriptures do not even assign inspiration to the biblical writers themselves the writers of Scripture are never called inspired 2nd Peter chapter 1 talks about how Moses Isaiah or New Testament Peter or Paul they were moved or they were born along by the Holy Spirit to pen the scriptures but they themselves are not inspired be very precise with your words what is inspired according to 2 Timothy 3:16 what is it that's inspired the scripture is not the scripture writer the scripture is what is inspired all scripture is god-breathed not even the scripture writers not even the men of the who wrote it so that's not so inspiration isn't just this loopy feeling that you got to move you into some kind of a creative mentality. That's not what biblical inspiration is. That's not what it means. What does it mean? It's very descriptive and it's very particular in its usage. To call something God-breathed is to say that it is the exhaled communication from the mouth of God himself. You see, that's, that's what we call vocalized communication. That's how it takes place. I'm speaking to you right now, right? And the way I'm doing that is is I, I am using inhaled air, and then by force, I am crossing that, by exhalation, I'm crossing my vocal cords to create sound, which then it gets formed into language by the use of my tongue in conjunction with my teeth and the rest of my mouth, okay? That's audible language. It's humanly breathed words that are thusly formed my words are the outbreath of henry okay now then back to our phrase theapnustas, all scripture god breathe that means that the scriptures are the language communication they are the very outbreath of god himself do you realize that about your bible your Bibles are the outbreath of God, and you hold it right in your hands. That's stunning. That's why we can actually say that our individual copies of the Word of God, we possess that in our hands. This is an amazing thing. That's why I say we celebrate a doctrine like inspiration. We have God's truth right in our possession. It's not the binding. It's not the pages. It's not the print. It's not the headings. It's not the margin or the footnotes. It's the text of the scriptures as written in the original autographs. That's what's classed as inspired. God breathed. Now, uh, any questions about those two things so far? In light of that, that in light of that, let's get some uh, to the issue of how it pertains to our reliability. Uh, to why we can trust the Word of God that we have here. Uh, If you believe that God exists in all his perfections, you believe that God is omnipotent, you believe he's omniscient, you believe he's holy, righteous, truthful, faithful, and loving, you have to believe that everything he says about his character is also, or says, that the Word says about his character is also going to be true about his Word. That's something you can trust, that you can take to the bank. The Bible has to be reliable because of those things. So let's come to these last two points. What does inspiration mean, these subpoints here? First of all, we want to observe that when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, it's verbal. It's verbal in nature. By this, we mean that every single word of the Scriptures comes straight from God, and it stands in perfection. Every single word comes straight from God and stands in perfection. Perfection. That just just doesn't mean the mean doing the names, not just talking about the main ideas or the concepts. No, every single noun, every single verb, adjective, preposition, conjunction. Even when you see the letter A or the indefinite, definite articles, they are every word inspired by God. It's interesting, even the tense of a state of being verb is significant. Remember the story, of, it's from the Gospel of John, I believe it's chapter 8, when Jesus was engaged with the Jewish leaders about God being his father. And at the end of that debate, Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews retorted, you aren't even 50 years old yet. And you've seen Abraham to which Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, can you finish the sentence? I am. am. Now, wait a minute. That doesn't even work grammatically. No. Before Abraham was, I was too. No, it's not what he said. Uh, he doesn't say, I'm going to be. No, didn't say that either. Before Abraham was, I am. That's, weird that's offset off putting grammatically speaking he was making a point his whole point hinged on the tense past present or future tense in this case a present tense of a state of being verb am to make his point that he was as divine as his father was and if we doubt that that's what he meant His enemies sure understood what he was doing because they immediately took up stones to kill him because they thought he was being blasphemous. So they knew full well what he was saying. So here you have in the text of Scripture, even the tense of a verb in this case shows how particular the inspiration of Scripture is. That's pretty stunning. Okay, So that means inspiration is verbal, Every single word of the Scripture comes straight from God. But we also like to point out that inspiration is plenary. It's plenary. And by this we mean that all the words, as they were given by God, equally inspired. Uh, If we just believed in verbal inspiration without believing in plenary inspiration, then you know what you could kind of do? You could kind of take every word that was given in the Bible. You could throw every word like a, like an individual word block, throw it in the back of a cement mixer, turn it all around, then dump them all out, and then put them back in order that you want them to be put in, you'd still have verbal inspiration because every word would be inspired, but you wouldn't have plenary inspiration, all of them given together, equally together, as God gave them. Now you wouldn't have plenary inspiration because that would mean you could just reassemble them, put your words the way you want them. No, you don't get to rearrange God's words. They all come together as He gave them to us. So it's we want we believe in plenary inspiration as well. Every word of Scripture is the exact choice of God, communicated perfectly, and then assembled together in sequence and in their entirety as He perfectly relayed them. We believe in the plenary or the verbal the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. Okay, any questions about the teachings that I'm sharing with you on that slide? Yes.
0: The word inspiration, when I hear it, is breathing in. Yeah. And expiration, breathing out. So I'm having a hard time (laughs) with your explanation of it being God's. Um, outbreath Out breath. yeah
1: yeah and that's the that's the crossing over of using english words into the original because the original just means god breathed and we're so used to using the word inspiration that we're not tampering with the label itself so yes i do get that connection but we have to if you just think about the fact that words God breathe. You don't speak by inhaling. You speak by exhaling, and that's kind of the idea behind it. So yeah, uh, I, I get the confusion that that can be the in and the out, <laughs> or the in and the x, but uh, but that is that is what it, it does mean. Good question though. Okay. Anything else on that slide? Okay. Now let's go to the other question that we have for today, and that is why is the inspiration of the Bible significant? Why is the inspiration of the Bible significant? Okay, and my notes are messed up here. Let's we'll see which one. Okay, here we go. In verse 15, Paul told Timothy that the very scriptures that he learned dated as far back as his childhood. It made him wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, from a child you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. So, Timothy had already learned enough competence in scripture to have banked his eternity on their truth, their reliability. But then Paul starts to build on that foundation to assure Timothy That the scriptures are fully reliable for the believer's personal life and ministry. So, notice in verse 16, I want you to see that one of the reasons it's significant is because scripture is profitable. Scripture is profitable. Uh, The word profitable it it means that it has value. Uh, This word profitable is used for, for profitable is only used four times in the New Testament, and each time it's in the pastoral epistles. It's used to convey a a, a ranking of what's most important. Um, There's value to something, but here's what has the most value. Okay, so you're ranking in value. First Timothy, um, Paul told his protege that bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable to all things. If you're reading an ESV, uh, it says exercise has some value, but godliness is of value in every way. Okay, so you're ranking in value. That's what the idea here is. And scripture is of the highest value. Valuable in every way. Profitable. For four things. You'll see them listed there. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Uh, Ken, how much time do I have left here? Okay, thank you. All right. Flag me at uh, three if I'm getting carried away. <laughs> um, first of all, it's profitable for doctrine. Um, What we believe uh, when when you see that it tells us that Scripture is the authorized teacher of truth. That's the resource of truth. It tells us what we're to believe about the faith. Uh, It's not what any man says is true. It's what God in His Word says is true. Amen. I mean, that's what has value. Uh, A a pastor friend posted something on Facebook some time ago. He says, "A long time ago, I came to the conclusion that if I could say couldn't say something from the pulpit from the Word of God, I had nothing to say." You know, that's a great conviction. That's what we want to have. Uh, It's the proper conviction because Scripture is valuable for teaching. It's profitable for doctrine. Then it's also profitable for reproof. This is a word about confrontation. Uh, and And yes, that is something that's profitable. Confrontation. We don't like it, but it is helpful to us. Because when we're behaving sinfully or unbiblically or otherwise unfittingly, Scripture reproves us it points out where we are wrong and what we're and how what we're doing is not god's design not his pleasure Reproof profits us just like teaching does. I remember coaching my son when he was younger about hitting in baseball. Uh, at the time, he had a tendency uh, of what we call stepping out of the box. When the pitch would come in, he would step and swing this way, so he would step out of the box. The problem is, is when you take your bat with you out of the way, the ball's over here while your swing is over here. You know, you're not going to hit the ball very often if you're stepping out of the box when you swing. Okay, well, that's a very common problem for young hitters. And, and, and so I, I would say to him, I say, I explain what you're doing wrong so that you would understand not to keep doing that. That's reproof. And, and, if you, and if we're truly fulfilling God's desire for us to become more like Christ, if we're progressing in our spiritual walk, we have to know what needs to be changed. What is true about Henry that's not true about Jesus that I need to fix? What's, what's true about me now is that I'm not like Jesus yet. <laughs> I'm not progressed enough to say that I'm Christ like. My Christ likeness has arrived. So I have to know where my shortfalls are, and reproof exposes those. And that makes it profitable. I'm also glad that there's another purpose to it, and that's correction, because reproof by itself without correction is kind of a downer, okay? Um, This is the partner word to reproof, because correction tells us what the changes are that we should make. That's correction. Uh, Reproof shows us what we're doing wrong. Correction shows us how to start doing what is right. Go back to my son. He was stepping out of the box. If I kept saying, Matt, you're stepping out of the box, That's reproof. That's incomplete instruction, though, if I just leave it there. Matt, you're stepping out of the box. Okay, well, Dad, what am I supposed to do? I don't know, but stop doing that. (laughs) <laughs> you know, well, that's, that's reproof that's not fulfilled. I mean, that's like, you know, I would have, if, I, if knowing my son, I would have got a sarcastic, well, gee, thanks, Dad. You know, you know that would have been what I got back. No, he needs correction. You no, know, what you need to do, instead of stepping out of the box, when the pitch is coming, then you step into the pitch so that your bat stays in the zone, so that you're going to hit the ball when it comes in. Now I'm giving correction. Not only does he know what to stop doing by stepping out, but he also knows what he should be doing to step into the pitch. That's reproof and correction working together. So when we accept scriptural reproof about what's wrong, followed by applying scriptural correction by doing what's right, guess what? We profit. Scripture is profit. We maximize the value of God's word when we let that happen in our lives. And then it's, called, and it's also profitable as instruction in righteousness. That's kind of this catch all phrase. Uh, it, it means it's the complete manual regarding all things that are spiritual in your life. As we're navigating life in this world, we need to know what is spiritual wisdom. We need to know what are the things that are virtuous, what are the things that are honorable, what are the things that are helpful. The Bible is profitable uh, for such things, and it tells us all that we need. Uh, now, it might not be giving me stock tips, but the Bible does teach me wisdom about investment and about stewardship, about responsibility. Uh, it doesn't tell a man and a woman that, that whom they are to marry, but Scripture does tell them when they do get married, here's how your marriage is going to work for God's glory. Here's how you're going to have your righteous benefit. The Bible's valuable as a spiritual manual in one's life. And that's why we need to be in the Scriptures every single day. It, 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 it's for the value that it, leads, that it yields to us. Uh, if I told you that every day for the rest of your life, outside on your, for, on your front porch is going to be four quarters sitting on your steps. And if I told you that every day, that's going to happen you would open your front door every day and you'd walk out there and pick up those four quarters. And every day, you're going to have that because you're going to do that. Why? For the value. Okay? In fact, you'd be a fool not to. (laughs) Okay? Uh, Well, a daily read in your Bible is of greater value than just a few quarters that are on your front stoop. So be sure you're maximizing the value of the Scriptures. It's fully reliable for everything we need to live our life for Christ. And then lastly, Scripture is sufficient. Verse 17 says, And the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished or equipped unto all good works. Paul explains that when you appropriate the profitability of the Scriptures, it will perfect you. It completes you. It thoroughly furnishes, equips a man to, unto all good works. Everything that you need to grow in Christ, everything you need to become a productive servant, all of it right here in our Bibles. So since Scripture can complete a person, since it can equip us unto every good work, it means that we need nothing outside the Bible for those aims to be achieved. That tells us that the Bible is fully sufficient in and of itself, We can use good books, we can have these supplements, we can have these other resources that help us to get more insight to the Bible, but we do not have to be reliant upon them. Because, frankly, the minute that they are different from the Scriptures, we don't need another book. To grow in Christ and to serve our Savior, Scripture is sufficient and fully reliable for two things. First of all, it's sufficient for the process. It says that the man of God may be perfect or complete, it's, there's a completion process, a perfection process. Uh, it completes us. Scripture, whenever we have a void in our spiritual walk, it fills it up. The word for complete here, it, it's related to the idea that conveys freshness. And in that sense, you know, if you've ever walked, been walking in your Christian spiritual life and you get your tank, you feel pretty drained and you feel like there's a void, and you've got to get a fill-up. I hate to use those words. To, you know, if you're running on half power, Scripture is sufficient to refresh, to replenish, to give us that refill. Uh, if it weren't so inappropriate, I'd say the Bible is your spiritual pep pill. So, but it's inappropriate, so you didn't hear it from me. Okay, so that's all there is. I mean, it, it, it's what boosts us. And notice as well, a man is thoroughly equipped to serve the Lord by applying the Scriptures. You know, I like to use books as well. I use resources. I have a particular particular book that I'm mentoring another young, growing pastor in on how to develop sermons and so forth. Every pastor you access commentaries. But if you ask most pastors how many times that they get solutions to textual problems, whether it comes from a commentary or whether it comes from just pouring over a text until God helped them with the Spirit's illumination, you're going to find that that latter one always trumps the former one. The Bible is sufficient for the process of living for and serving the Lord. So it's sufficient for the process, and then lastly, it's sufficient for the product. What's the end result? What's the fruit? Paul says, we're sufficiently furnished unto all good works. Everything that needs to be done, everything that needs to be accomplished in our lives or for the ministry, if there's anything godly to be accomplished in that which we, in that which we put our energies toward, it's going to be perfectly fulfilled when we do so according to the scriptures. When we desire an outcome that's measured by what God wants or what, by, what, by what God ple- is pleased with, what, what, is, what his agenda is fulfilled by, we confidently say we've got the resource that guarantees that outcome. What is that resource? It's the Bible. It's sufficient for the product. It's sufficient for the product without exception, because the word all in verse 17 is the same word all in verse 16. All means all. The only change between the two words is one is referring in a plural to all scriptures. This one's every good work, each and every good work. There's not a part of the Christian life or ministry that gets treatment outside the scriptures. And this is why we don't use business, business methodology when it comes to conducting ministry. This is why we reject typical modern psychology when it comes to, to counseling. This is why we reject the all the isms philosophically speaking, that are out there when it comes to modeling and governing our lives. Why? They're not sufficient to, com- per- to perfect or to complete. They're not sufficient to equip unto every good work. Why? Those sources are not Scripture. End of story. That's really all it is. They're not God-breathed. This book, the Bible, it alone can hold such a claim and sufficiently back it up without fail. This, without fail, uh, this book is entirely reliable because it is given to us by the inspiration of God. Any questions about the items on that slide? I want to finish. One, uh, I got five minutes. Okay. Uh, second Tim. Uh, sorry. Second Peter, chapter one. If you'll turn there. Actually, I think I have the verses here as well. Good. All right. Uh, Often when people look at 2 Timothy, uh, scholars will say it's like the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul. Those were the final words that we have recorded in Scripture before he died. Um, There's actually another book in Scripture that's the last will and testament of its author, and that would be 2 Peter. He was also about to die, and he wrote final words to his readers as well. And it's interesting what he wrote in first chapter of second Peter. It says here, Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. I want you to remember these things because I'm about to die and I don't want you to forget the things that I'm saying. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. You know, we didn't make this stuff up is what he's saying, (laughs) okay? All the things that we tell you about the Lord Jesus, all the doctrines that the apostles have advanced and taught to you about the church and so forth, these are not cunningly devised fables. We didn't just make it up. We made known unto you the power and coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, he's going to refer to an event that happened in the gospel stories here in this passage. He said, he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Okay, stop there. What event in the gospel stories is Peter talking about when he heard that voice, and saw Jesus glorified, and it was on a holy mount. What was the story? The transfiguration. transfiguration. Exactly. He's talking about that. We were there. We saw this whole thing happen, and we heard what the Father said from the skies. We heard that when he spoke from the most excellent glory when we were with him on the holy mount. We saw the whole thing and heard what God said, okay? Now watch what he says. We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light and it shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Actually, I want to finish the rest of that chapter. There's only two more verses, and I'll read them to you here. He then says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, if you notice here in verses 17 and 18, that's the point about the transfiguration. But then in verse 19, he says there's something that was even more sure than that story, that experience, that event. How do you get more sure than the event of the transfiguration? How do you get more sure than the audible record of God speaking from the skies? What would be more certain, more sure, more bankable than that whole experience? You would, I mean, if you're like me, I'd say, I can't think of a thing. (laughs) There is nothing that should top that. Peter says, no, there's something even more sure than that the scriptures. That blows my mind. Why? Why would it need to be more sure? Well, not everybody was going to be able to go back and rinse and repeat the transfiguration in your own life. That was a one and done. That was a you were there or you weren't there. But what is now available to all of us and made more secure, more informational, more certain, more sure than even that experience, even Peter's record of it until it got written down here, the more sure thing is Scripture. i got to tell you, if you ever doubted whether or not you could trust your Bible, that locks the case and throws away the key. Scripture is even more reliable than Peter's testimonial about the transfiguration. That's an incredible thing to think about. You can take it to the bank that you can trust this book because it is truly inspired by God. And that is a thing to celebrate. Any questions about what I've shared with you today? All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to share with these good people about this wonderful truth that we celebrate. We are so grateful that we have your inspired word right in our hands. We don't have to make up our Christianity. We don't have to manufacture it generation after generation. You've settled everything about faith and life and you put it down in your holy truth so that we'd never have to question it. What it says to me, it says to these good people, it says to the whole of all humanity. Your truth has been established and forever settled, not just here on this earth, but your word says settled in heaven. What an incredible thing that is. Thank you for this more sure word that we have in our hands. May we be thankful for it in Jesus' name. Amen.